Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. Merry Christmas, happy holidays and festive greetings, whatever you celebrate at this time of year. This is our 25th of December episode of Sprogcast and we've got lots of different people to talk to today. First and foremost, Mr Mark Harris. Good morning and Merry Christmas. I don't think anyone is going to be listening on Christmas Day. <laughs> Hi, Karen. Hi. <laughs> so, who have we got this episode on this wonderful Christmas morning? Um, well, I have had a chat with Dr. Wendy Jones, hero of the Breastfeeding Network, who has some interesting things to say about alcohol and breastfeeding. Really interesting. Um and a local mum to me donated her birth story, um, and that's quite short and sweet, literally. And then we'll play out with a poem from Katie Edwards. Right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend this is Christmas morning, Karen. Okay. So, I was up early opening presents. <laughs> I can't do role play. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, Karen, answer me this: Why do you bother with a script? to try and keep you on track mark we can have quite a nice light episode today because even if people aren't listening on the 25th and i really don't blame them for not doing that um you know over the next few days they might download but they might have been um, cooped up in the house with their extended family for the last three days and this is the first thing that really helps them crack a smile Oh, and, and the other thing about Christmas is it's great because it has a birth story at the centre of its narrative. It does. I was thinking about this when I was going to sleep last night because I'm very yeah. diligent about preparing for this broadcast. Oh, I know. And I was thinking about, you know, I, I have a real problem with it. And you'll have seen all the, the, the memes going around Facebook of the, the threes, three wise women and things like that. <laughs> I just have a problem with the whole, those words, she laid him in a manger. She didn't lay him in a manger. How do you know that? No way did she lay him in a manger. She's just had a baby. Who, who, what new mum voluntarily gets up and goes and puts it in some animal eating trough? That is not going to happen. It's like a box. They recommend that in some Scandinavian countries. She's going to be doing skin to skin and cuddling the baby, surely, in um, what what would we call it? Zero AD? Um, (laughs) (laughs) There would be no concept of going and putting the baby down over there, would there? Well, it it would be good for his microbiome. (laughs) To do the skin to skin would be good for his microbiome. Not populating with the microbiomes of cows and sheep. Oh, I love the idea that he was born in an alongside midwifery unit. Because <laughs> <laughs> there was no room. Yeah, uh, in the no room in the obstetric unit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, trouble, the trouble with that in terms of our, our you know, current uh, uh, birth world is that standalone birth units are struggling with numbers up and down the country. Yeah, well, I was at a, a steering group for Thames Valley um, a few weeks ago and they were looking at kind of planning future capacity because we do have far far more births than we have capacity for in this area and yeah. um, there were the, the discussion on my table was very much around kind of reflecting that women tend not to choose a standalone birth unit at least for their first baby they would be yeah. much more likely to choose alongside but tend to default to thinking that the delivery suite is the safest place to be standalone birth units have kind of 
exist inside a structure that has a certain view of risk. So, so therefore, what's permeated into our cultural understanding of risk is outworks in women saying, oh, no, I don't think I'll go there. Certainly, yeah. uh, many of their partners have a default reaction to the idea of risk and, and tend to, you know, tend to go along with what medical personnel are suggesting. When my son was born, or before he was born, um, we did our NHS antenatal class and the midwife running the class mentioned uh, the standalone birth unit over in Ascot, which I'd never even heard of at that point, and just said, you should all go visit it. And we did, and it was lovely. Um, There was just something about the the positivity in the atmosphere, and I can remember on the day we actually went in, um, in the morning, uh, the first time we went in, because of course we went in too early, um, (laughs) they did a scan because I'd said that I was feeling discomfort sort of quite low down and they were worried that he'd turned and so they did a scan and the midwife was looking at the screen and she just got so excited she's like look that's your baby's face as if it was the first one she'd ever seen and you know she wasn't newly qualified by any means and we said why are you so excited you must see this every day and she said the day I stop being excited by this I'm going to retire and we knew we were in the right place that is so and moving. I, I don't me. feel that like is... you get that so much in the the obstetric environment. I don't know. I I would argue gently that all behaviour, um, all human behaviour exists inside a context. You know, so it's so a context tends to frame behaviour. You know, so if you walk into a a, a hospital that's a, a, a doctor managed unit, that context tends to frame the behaviors that turn up inside it so priorities become different you know whereas if it's like home you know we had our first two babies in hospital first three babies in hospital and then we had the last two at home you're losing count aren't you mark <laughs> i am i am i know i've got five six children five we had we had three at home and sorry three at hospital two at home and the home births were totally different. I mean, notwithstanding, th- my three daughters watched their brothers being born in the front room. You know, were watching. Certainly Amy was present when, when Ben was born. And, and I'm pretty sure Amy and Laura were present when Joe were born. Now, it certainly hasn't frightened them because, they're, you know, Laura's got four children and she's 25. But that's exactly what is has gone on, isn't it? That it's been a positive experience and they perhaps view birth as, as not a, a frightening, dangerous experience. I, I, I think that's true. I, uh, they, they, you know, I've not sought to brainwash them with my opinion because anyone... Yeah, but they've grown there, up around you. Yeah, well, they yeah, can't not have absorbed your your views on I, it, but that doesn't, I, that's not brainwashing. It's parenting. No, it's not. No, it's not. And, uh, you know, my... I always say that my children are following in the footsteps I thought I'd covered up. You do always say that. Do I? Yes. <laughs> and, and because, because of the nature of learning, you know, human beings are learning machines. Uh, the vast majority of that learning is happening outside of awareness. You know, children are modeling machines. They, they are modeling our behaviors. They are reproducing our behaviors at deep and, and the behaviors are installed at a deeply unconscious level. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, I take your point. You know, uh, certainly my daughter's have no fear of birth yeah 
So what do you think about this piece of news? We've got a BBC News article from the 8th of December that says midwife units see one in four mums transferred to consultants. Yeah, it, well, it's a headline figure, isn't it? And, mm. and we, we need to look at reasons for transfer because, you know, reasons for transfer are so multifactorial, uh, you know, are so nuanced dependent upon each transfer you know you know sometimes the reason for transfer could be so-called delayed progress mm. with, with with no fetal health considerations in terms of the heart rate you, well, you know i think I mean? a lot that, of the time it might be i want an epidural yeah well we don't know but maybe you know we've got an epidural rate in the uk roughly about 35 percent mm. so it, it doesn't necessarily impact on a safety no. Discussion, which is to, to me, it was, was non-news. Yeah. Um, yeah. We had a comment on Facebook from Hannah Harvey suggesting we reword it as 75% of women give birth naturally in midwifery-led units. And she comments yeah. that society puts such a negative spin on birth and scaremongers people into believing they need as much intervention as possible to keep them safe, which is what yeah. we kind of know, isn't it? Yeah. Well, well you yeah, know, we spoke... I think last time about Facebook being an echo chamber. Yeah. Let's be honest, the culture and the society we live in is its own echo Absolutely, chamber. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, so, uh, yeah, she's right, she's right, isn't she? Mm. Uh, you, you can spin stats whichever way. Uh, when I say spin them, you can present them in such a way as to send a certain type of message. And that's that's happening all the time. You can't we we can't stop be being influenced by that, can we? No. And uh, the thing is, articles like this, which just put have quote after quote, story after story of somebody's terrible experience. You know, we've got a quote from somebody at the Birth Trauma Association saying, even when someone is deemed to be low risk, something can still go catastrophically wrong. Um, I, I'm laughing because uh, because. You know, language directs meaning-making attention. The language we we use is sending people on a meaning-making journey outside of consciousness. Mm. So if you just dissect that statement, was it catastrophic event? It, something can still go catastrophically wrong. But if you are yeah. the co-founder of the Birth Trauma Association, then you speak all the time to people who have had awful experiences. Yeah. And that's your own, that's your echo chamber right there, isn't it? It's like me. I, I tend to um, have a, a fairly sort of bleak view of early breastfeeding because... I yeah. speak all the time to people who are having difficulties. Yeah, and when I qualified as a nurse, I worked in what was then called geriatrics, and uh, working within, you know, care of the elderly. And at that stage in my life, I didn't want to live beyond seventy. My mum um, was training as a nurse in Belfast, and right. she was pregnant with me, and she was very young. Like twenty at the time, and um, she um, she was working in a neonatal unit for all the babies in Northern Ireland who were born with some kind of birth defects, all the Down's babies, all the spina bifida, everything. Um, and when she when I was born, I had dislocated hips. Right. And when they told her, she was so relieved that that's all that was wrong with me. Wow. Wow. You were born in Belfast. Yeah. Wow, how cool. <laughs> Do you think? I, I've known you for two years. And now Met you know you that. twice and didn't know that. <laughs> um, it's funny you should say that when Joe was born, my youngest biological son, I'd just done the advanced paediatric life support course. 
And uh, a friend of mine, Biddy Saunders, and another midwife was around supporting my my late wife. And when Joe came out, he responded like a, a newborn does. I, I reacted like a blabbering idiot. <laughs> Honestly, I'd just done this pediatric advanced life support and I was going to Biddy, you need to do this, you need to do that. Oh. She, she had to shout at me. Oh, that doesn't sound very oxytocin-inducing, Mark. Well, I'll tell you what, she she had to deal with my amygdala response. Did she need to give you a slap? Well, well metaphorically, <laughs> you know, she was my mate, so she, I would have taken it from her. But, it, you know, my amygdala response was being informed by this information I'd had about paediatric advanced life support and, and was kind of the fact that I was a, a, a new father and all of that um had a had an impact in that moment mm. so yeah yeah mark may i politely request that we return somewhere to the script yeah <laughs> we're miles uh, off okay okay so, i'm gonna say broadcast is brought to you by our sponsor Pinter yeah. martin an independent publishing company specializing in pregnancy birth and parenting psychology nutrition and yoga at pinterandmartin.com and you can find us on facebook.com slash broadcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. I, I think it's time, Karen, for another voice. Let's hear Wendy Jones. So I'm Wendy Jones. I'm a pharmacist. Uh, used to work in a community pharmacy, but now, about four or five years ago, gave up to spend my life living on the internet and Facebook answering questions about drugs in breast milk, which has been my passion for the last 25 years. I have three daughters, all of whom were breastfed, and I have three grandchildren, all of whom either were breastfed or are still being so at the moment. Um, and I'm passionate about getting information to mums about what they can and can't do when they're breastfeeding, whether it's about drugs, alcohol, procedures, x-rays. So really happy to be spending some time today. Thank you. So you, you've got um, numerous different perspectives on, on this and lots and lots of background. I've never been surprised recently about any question that I've been asked about drugs in breast milk. That was an interesting qualifier there, recently. <laughs> <laughs> recently, it's probably actually never. Um, it's been anything from, um, can I have my nails painted if I'm breastfeeding? Mm. Uh, up to, um, I've got cancer, can I have chemotherapy and continue to breastfeed? Everything in between is normal. <laughs> yeah, so the whole range. And you said you've been, it's been your passion for 25 years? Yeah. Um, I first wrote some information. Um, it was originally for NCT back in 1995. And I spent two weeks working for a homeopathic pharmacy. And nobody wanted to talk to me because I didn't know anything about homeopathy. Um, so I sat there and I updated what was a two-page A4 sheet about drugs, predominantly in the Tower Hamlets area. Most people were being given sleeping tablets. And I was told, write whatever you want. And I turned it into 36 pages um, and then put my home telephone number on the top of it and said, anybody who wants any information, please feel free to phone me. And uh, I wonder why I'm still married and my, why my kids didn't leave home at the time. Did that open the floodgates? Absolutely. I had no idea how many people would be contacting me, um, asking so many different questions that weren't covered in there. They'd come across going to see a healthcare professional who told them that they couldn't breastfeed while taking something. 
um, and wanted to know if that was true. And, and that's continued ever since. It's, it's been a, um, an ongoing process of providing information for both the healthcare professionals and the mothers or fathers or grandmothers. Mm. And my understanding generally is that almost always the answer to that question, do I have to stop breastfeeding, is, is going to be no. You don't have to. No. There are very, very few cases where you have to stop breastfeeding. So the things like the chemotherapy are the very high-end um, extremes. There's a few cases where you might need to stop for 24 hours. So if you've got a truly radioactive drug, not radio-opaque drug, which just shows up under x-rays, um, and a very, very limited number of drugs. But it's providing the evidence-based information and the reassurance to everybody that there's not going to be any harm to babies. Sometimes I get asked about this because I can explain about licensing. We, we you know, On the leaflet it says you, you shouldn't, but we have the data. Where does all that data come from? It's usually collected from data where mothers have chosen to breastfeed and they've got a healthcare professional with an interest who collects what's happened to them, what the outcome was, what the dose was. Um, a lot of the data is collected in the States and in Australia. Very little seems to come from uh, studies in this country. But if you've got a study with 10 people in, that's actually quite a large study. We don't have the same evidence-based um, information that I would look for a, a drug study as a pharmacist um, helping a GP where you've got thousands of people. But we can also look at the way the drug is handled in the body and actually work out um, how much is going to get there, understanding how the drug is being handled by the body, which makes it safe. So that's how you determine the risk levels. And, and, and I think it's also important that if mums are taking something, that they know if the baby reacts in a certain way, that that's a signal that they may need to act differently. So, for instance, um, when I had my kids, and you know, I don't know, you know when you had yours, Karen, but um, we were all given codeine as painkillers straight after birth. And because one baby in Canada very, very sadly died, nobody's allowed codeine anymore. But actually, for most of us, it's actually absolutely fine. You just have to watch the baby doesn't become drowsy. If it becomes drowsy, it shows that you're concentrating the drug in your milk and it's it's bad for the baby and you need to stop the drug. Um, but for people who, whose babies haven't responded, it's fine to carry on. But we need to be, make mums aware of what to look out for. They need to know the symptoms that would be a warning sign. Yeah. So if you take antibiotics and your baby gets runny poo, we expect that. That's absolutely normal. It'll get better when you stop taking the antibiotics. If your baby is sleepy and isn't waking for feeds, that's a danger signal. Hmm. So this information, um, I guess people tend to have to get access it on a case-by-case -case basis, usually from you. You know, there are general guidelines, and that's where all the fact sheets that I wrote that are on the BFN website came from. Um, general guidelines, because I can't reach every mother in the country who has a question. My daughter was joking to me this morning. She said, I've joined a, a different Facebook group. And every day, there's phone the Wendy lady. Yes. <laughs> I've signposted people to you many, many times myself. <laughs> the nice thing is every time I go to a conference, somebody will come up to me and go, you probably won't remember me, but you made such a difference on mm. that one day. Yeah. Well, it's such an important service. How does it work now? How do people access the information? 
It's not still your home phone number, is it? <laughs> it isn't still my home phone number. Um, BFN uh, set up a separate home number, separate telephone line into my home, um, which has now become part of the call centre uh, from the National Breastfeeding Helpline. But there are only two of us to answer that, and the other person who answers the calls has very limited time to be on it because she has young children and is working full time. So, and, and I don't have time to be there all the time either. So it's basically takes answer phone messages and I phone back as and when I can. But we're trying to discourage use of that just at the moment, just because it's become too difficult to handle. But people can email um, and there's also a Facebook page which seems to take the vast majority of queries these days. We all live on Facebook, don't we? We Social do. <laughs> do you have the um, details of that to hand? If you look on Facebook for the BFN Drugs in Breast Milk Information Service, you should be able to find the Facebook page. Or you can also find the Facebook page, which is my own, which is just called Breastfeeding and Medication. Brilliant. Thank you. So we'll make sure people have got that. Um, this episode of the podcast is coming out on the 25th of December. And I'm not going to assume that everybody will be um, getting drunk. But there <laughs> may be some people out there who want to know, what can we say about alcohol and breastfeeding? We all want to have, have a glass of something at Christmas, don't we? And for most of us, we've not drunk any alcohol through the whole of pregnancy. So actually drinking one glass of wine is such a big celebration and it may go straight to your head. The main message is that there needs to be an adult in the household who is limiting their drinking, so is in charge of the children should everybody become a little bit too tiddly to be capable of taking care of them. But as mum... If you can wait until after your baby's gone to bed to have a drink, that would be absolutely fantastic. But how do we ever know when that baby's going to wake up half an hour later, an hour later, three times more in the night because they're overexcited because grandma's come to stay? So that's probably uh, something that's not going to happen. If you are drinking and you feel quite capable and in control of yourself looking after your baby, then that's absolutely fine. You can breastfeed as normal. If you get to the point where you're feeling um, dizzy, disorientated, drunk, however you want to, to describe that, um, then you need to be careful about co-sleeping or falling asleep with your baby on the settee anywhere because your natural inhibitions will be lowered. And if you have bought drunk to the point that you are lying flat in the gutter being sick, then you need somebody else to be looking after your baby and in a perfect world, expressing your milk for comfort and not breastfeeding till the following morning. I think if you've got a hangover, asking you to be breastfeed, uh, expressing for comfort is also something that's not going to happen. You don't need to express to clear your milk of the alcohol. As you drink, the alcohol goes into your milk. As your level in your body comes down, the alcohol comes back out of your milk as well. It's a two-way process. So it sounds like all of those cautions are basically based around the parents' behaviour around the baby, um, not about the quantity of alcohol in the milk. Yeah, uh, babies actually can handle the amount of alcohol in the, in the milk really, really well. You have to have drunk an awful lot before the baby will be affected. There's one study um, in the literature where a mother had drunk a whole bottle of port and the baby was found in the morning snoring um, and uh, developing gout. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. 
with another lovely word, soporific. Uh, mm-hmm. And I just have this picture of this baby lying on its back with its hands above its head going, oh, <laughs> I feel very well. <laughs> Poor baby. <laughs> Mum having drunk a whole bottle of port was feeling too good herself. Oh. But it was a very, very dated piece of research, but it just makes me laugh. Mm-hmm. Yes. A couple of glasses of, of, of wine with your meal, one glass of port afterwards, absolutely fine. That's probably going to be good news for lots and lots of people listening. <laughs> when I was doing my PhD study, I, I lost most of the, the mothers to the study over the millennium because they all wanted to drink alcohol and they all thought that that meant that they had to stop breastfeeding. And I think that's also why a lot of younger mums don't breastfeed because they think they can't have fun. They can. We can drink alcohol. We don't have to be perfect dairy cows sitting eating healthy organic food and not drinking alcohol. We're human beings and we have a life. Lovely. Thank you. <laughs> Is there anything else that you think would be useful to to tell mothers and also health professionals? Because a lot of the people listening, midwives, doulas, antenatal teachers, breastfeeding counsellors. I do try to reach as many as people as possible as quickly as possible because I always think it could be my daughter on the end of the email or the Facebook page asking for a question. Um, but you know, in the real world, there is only me answering most of the questions. The Facebook page has a very small team of admins who can send people to the fact sheets. So there are fact sheets which are particularly applicable for Christmas on norovirus. When we're in big groups at Christmas, we often pick up this winter vomiting bug. Um, there's an information sheet on that. So the information on the anti-sickness and anti-diarrhea remedies that you can take. There's a really good fact sheet on indigestion because we all eat too much at Christmas, don't yeah, we? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I read the number of calories that Jamie Oliver's Christmas dinner is going to, to produce for everybody and uh, it's quite a lot. Um, so yeah, you might need to have some indigestion remedies. And as a pharmacist, I was always taught that before you start the Christmas celebrations, you need to make sure you have enough painkillers for you and your baby. And if you need to take paracetamol, your baby can still have the full dose of Calpol as well. You can both have your normal doses. You need to have indigestion remedies and you need to have something for diarrhea um, and probably something for cold. But if you're a breastfeeding mum, you can't have the branded products that all contain decongestants because one dose can drop your milk supply by 24%, wow. which is quite a lot. Um, but you can use decongestant nasal spray if you're feeling really poorly. So you can use paracetamol, ibuprofen, decongestant nasal spray, which is all I ever use anyway. Right. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you. You might also need something for constipation. <laughs> Maybe. Do you do all of this as a volunteer, Wendy? I get um, a small amount of money from the BFN for developing the resources on the website. But uh, yeah, the majority of it is done just for the love of helping women and keeping women breastfeeding as long as they want to. Wow, you really are a hero. And I think the, everybody out there would agree with that. So um, I'm going to say thank you for your time, but also thank you for everything that you do to support both the mothers and the health professionals who are doing work with them. Thank you. Thank you. Um, happy Christmas to everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Wendy. So that was Dr. Wendy Jones, um, hero, pharmacist, uh, breastfeeding specialist um, and author of Why Mother's Medication Matters, which is going to be out soon from Pinter and Martin. I, I was intrigued 
by virtual reality. Were you? Have you ever tried it? Well, we live in one, really. <laughs> Do you? Well, no human being experiences reality, whatever it, whatever it is, directly. You know, we've got all these sense data coming in that we have to delete some, distort some, and create an internal map of what's out there. So everyone lives in a virtual reality in one way or another. But the implications for exploring virtual reality in terms of changing your experience, I think, quite profound and has been recognised in the sports world for a long time. Mm. And it, it's kind of, it, it's a bit sort of hypnobirthing isn't it? I'm probably going to upset all the hypnobirthers out there. It's very based on, on principles that hypnobirth is using to alter people's consciousness and therefore their experience. Mm. Yeah. And, and we, we know that when our level of consciousness, if we can talk about it that way, or our perception is changed and shifted, there are neuro neurochemical changes in our body, in our physicality. Our thinking affects our feeling. Okay, so you're seeing it as something that, that isn't just in your head, basically. It's, it's not just a distraction. Your, your whole life is in your head. You, you, I mean, I, I'm looking at my computer now, and it appears like I'm seeing it out there, but it's just light waves coming in that's then translated into an image on the inside. I'm seeing it on the inside. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling mine on my knees as well. Yeah, right, I get that. Mine's on the table. But you get, you get, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there is a sense in which how we think about things changes our neuro chemicals and our experience of things mm. we, we have a comment on facebook about this as well which um it's from Kay hodgkin it says i feel like it's a great fun accessible way to access distraction and mindfulness techniques but also this is what we have to do when midwives and doulas uh, aren't available to all ah that's interesting that's a bit controversial so rather than a midwife you have a, a virtual midwife in fact yeah i mean that could be a thing couldn't it i'm sure people will have moralistic reasons why that's a poor idea we do have to consider we're delivering service we're delivering care inside a system that is under resourced yeah you know maybe we should be a bit heuristic or pragmatic about things and uh, apply that test of if it works why not yeah well, i mean we know we're under resourced we've got news articles about that as well haven't we and yeah, we have. the rising birth rate and loss of bursaries doesn't seem like a very good match well i was i was with first year students in bradford yesterday they'd only been on the course for about eight weeks wide range of ages and i spoke to at least five uh student midwives brand new from loads of different backgrounds from management to childcare who were saying without the bursary they would not be midwives and that yeah. cannot be right it cannot be right that, that these folks so committed to being midwives, so committed to, to, to pursuing the academic excellence they needed to even get an interview uh, will be barred uh, because of their financial circumstances. That, that can't be right. And it is going to create kind of a, a class of midwives that don't have within them a very broad demographic Ah, that's without a doubt. Now, I've worked with a, a number of women who have gone from A-levels into midwifery and qualified um, much younger than me, uh, about 23, 24, who are outstanding. So it's no reflection upon them. 
you know that they're a needed part of the workforce but we need we need women from all backgrounds all ages and i i think you're right we're gonna we're gonna end up with a certain demograph of midwife and uh not good for the profession uh, not good for birthing women no interesting but it always bemuses me karen when it's a headline breastfeeding is a human right why does it bemuse you well because of course it is okay so we're looking at the independent article Bre- breastfeeding is a human right says say un experts from 22nd of november of course it is but the point of this article is quite important that the um, UN have made critical remarks about the formula industry, basically, and about their marketing practices, which needs to be said. Oh, God, we say it every, every time we talk. Yeah, but that's because we're in our echo chamber. This needs to be said more widely. It needs to be on the front page of The Independent. I'm sure it wasn't on the front page. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm I'm with you. And uh, the challenge is, of course, in, in the broader community is, is that statement then generates a knee-jerk reaction from someone else who who believes that having formula information is a human right. Well, I agree with that too. But it needs to be accurate information so that parents are making informed decisions, not decisions that are influenced by the, the what have we called it before? Um, Propaganda? <laughs> we, yeah, they'll do. Yeah, it's a psyop, isn't it? The way the formula companies communicate is sophisticated. It's very clever. Uh, you know, I like to assume it's not Machiavellian, but I think it is. That's the word you were using before, yeah. Yeah, I, I, they are very good at what they do. They are, and and the amount of money, the amount of um, investment they can put into marketing compared with the amount that our own governments put into breastfeeding support, it's just not a level playing field. And the, the ability to think bigger, kind of systems thinking, you know, to see beyond the minutiae is really important. And I, this isn't off the subject, but I was talking to someone the other day who said they noticed over the last three months that a lot of the women they're talking to have had retained placentas, okay? but And that's new. It's out of the blue. And I thought about that for a minute, and she was asking me what could be the reason for that. Is there anything the women could do differently, blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, it's, it's again, it's so multifactorial. It's, it, it's hard to put your finger on one thing. But I said this, when I qualified as a, a midwife way back in 94, every September we would have an increase in women that had infections from the repair of an episiotomy or a tear. And we would have an increase of infections over the September and October into November. And then that increase would go down. Mm -hmm. When we looked at it from a bigger picture, we realized that's when the new SHO started. Interesting. And back then, you know, the teaching methodology was see one, do one, teach one. So in those early months of learning under that kind of system, infection rates went up until they got better at it. That's quite poor, isn't it, really? Well, I I mean, that teaching methodology as a broad template for learning things isn't a bad one, but it's a poor one when we're talking about repairing perineums. Yeah, isn't it just? Repairing a woman's body. But the point I'm making is that when you took a higher level view at what was going on, you saw a bigger pattern. And I do wish in a way that, that 
that governments were able to take that higher level view and see how important breastfeeding is for us in the longer term. You know, in the midterm, not, not to mention the next generation of uh, health outcomes. And it just doesn't seem to be a message that's having much of an impact at grassroots level. Yeah, well, that, that's why we need articles like this to be written. So I'm not knocking it. No, no, I know. We have another interesting um, article, the one about caesareans. And I, I've got the original research here, Cliff Edge Model of Obstetric Selection in Humans, which is the mm -hmm. one that was then headlined with caesareans are altering the course of evolution, which I don't know about you, but I looked at it and my first reaction to that was nonsense. I've got an article which I'll post called, Wait, are C-sections really altering the course of evolution? Which is published on gizmodo.com by George Dvorsky. And um, he says, I'm just going to read you the first paragraph. A new study from the University of Vienna suggests that cesarean sections are changing the trajectory of human evolution, altering physical characteristics in both mothers and babies. And it's based on a mathematical model showing that the use of caesareans since the 1950s has led to evolutionary changes in the size of newborns and possibly the mother's pelvic dimensions, making it increasingly difficult for babies to fit through the mother's birth canal. So what he's saying is because we have um, a higher rate of caesarean birth, more bigger babies are born who wouldn't have, wouldn't have made it through the birth process. Um, without cesarean and so that's changing evolution my initial response to that was evolution just doesn't happen that fast 50 years is not long enough no I, I and that would be that would be my gut gut feeling is evolutionary adaptations happen over millions of years yeah at, at that kind of structural biophysical level we you, we know about epigenetic changes you know may well happen within a generation in terms of turning on and off the genome yeah. evolutionary history so-called millions and millions and millions of years of adaptive behavior based on just an instinctive response and the need to survive has been happening over millions of years we've been out to talk about it barely two hundred thousand years a blink of an eye you know, if you're going to have a scale model, all those millions of years, and then our ability to talk, you'd have to look look under our ability to talk under an atomic microscope. It's also the case that this study is purely mathematical. Yeah. It doesn't look at the realities of what's happening. And it comes out with something like there's been a change from... Um, 30 in a thousand kefalopelvic pelvic disproportion CPD. which means what small pelvis yeah well it means, but it's it means pelvis smaller than baby yeah <laughs> um quotes 30 in a thousand births in 1960s and 36 in a thousand births today that's tiny all of this stuff is really just data that we can take consideration of yeah. you know the, the minute i start investing belief is the minute i stop thinking so it's all to be tested inside our collective experience and our individual experience so uh, all data is useful i think you know all of the source of stuff even from people that are totally disagreeing with what i say all of that stuff is is fodder for for understanding and uh, kind of out out you know kind of testing inside our own experience so mm. you know so as so long as it so long as we give it a, a fair critique and, yeah, and, and don't dismiss it out of hand because it doesn't fit with our own personal cherished beliefs. Um, yeah, yeah. Hey, Karen. As always, that's been a little bit feisty, a little bit edgy, 
but very enjoyable. Uh, but we would love to know, wouldn't we, Karen, what the listeners think. So please join the discussion on Facebook and Twitter. Shall we have a listen to the birth story? Oh, let's. Hi, my name's Chelsea. Um, just had a little, well, had a little boy last year, Jack. Um, well, my waters broke Christmas Eve morning and um, went down to the hospital and they basically said, I have 24 hours to go into labour naturally. So I knew he was going to be a Christmas Day baby from the off. Seven o'clock Christmas morning, um, I woke up in pain. The rest of my waters went on the bed. Got to the hospital by half seven um, and Jack was here by seven minutes past ten. Wow, um, super quick. Yeah, yeah, very, very quick. Um, and the midwife's quite surprised, I think. It's first baby. They expected me to be in their hours. Got in there at seven and they thought, ah, oh, maybe she's a few centimetres. And I was already eight centimetres dilated. I have no idea how. So until the rest of my waters went at seven in the morning, I wasn't in much pain, to be honest. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I got there at seven. They examined me. Um, complete, so, so quiet. For Christmas Day, obviously, so quiet. I had two midwives to myself. Um, Kat and Yvonne, I think their names were. They were absolutely amazing. I couldn't fault them from start to finish. Given it was Christmas morning, they were in full spirit, very happy, very calm. Um, I was in the summer birthing suite, which again was lovely. I spent my whole the whole time in there. They didn't move me onto a ward because it was so quiet. So um, it was quite nice. Me and my partner and Jack had some time bonding just to ourselves. Um, they made it a little bit special. They brought chocolate croissants to us for breakfast, and everyone was dressed up with little Santa hats. And it was all it was really 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 positive experience. I couldn't fault them from start to finish. To be honest, it sounds lovely. <laughs> yeah, it was. For first birth, it was really really lovely. I mean, okay, Christmas Day is probably not the ideal time to have a baby, but it, it happened, and it was yeah, it was a really lovely experience. Were you expecting him to come on Christmas Day? Was he early, late? He was He was due um, on the 28th, well, somewhere between the 28th and the 30th. They weren't too sure. Um, and I'd always said all along, any day apart from Christmas Day would be perfect. Not for me, but mainly for him, because I didn't want him to have a birthday on Christmas Day in the future. But as, as my waters went on Christmas Eve, I thought, well, that's it. He's going to be here Christmas Day now <laughs> at some point. Um, and it was really lovely. So he was born at 7 minutes past 10. We were home by three o'clock the same afternoon. Um, so it was a bit of a crazy day, but we managed to get a little bit of Christmas time at home, the three of us, or a few family members. So it was really, it was nice that, that we could come home as well. So it just sounds so calm and lovely, and I know that's a nice environment. Yeah, everything was very calm. And I suppose because it was Christmas Day, they were so, so quiet. None of the midwives were rushing around. We had the same two midwives throughout. One of them was... Um, a senior midwife as well she's always popping in and out but yeah it was it was so nice it was, maybe it's probably quite a nice time to have baby on Christmas day because it was so relaxed and so calm <laughs> yeah there's none of the hustle and bustle that I imagine usually goes on so you're going to aim for Christmas day again probably not <laughs> <laughs> no if I could have that calmness but yeah. maybe I don't know in the summertime so I have absolutely no chance at all of another Christmas day baby it would be perfect Oh, well, that's lovely. Thank you. Um, was there anything that you um, felt you did to just um, for yourself for coping and, you know, managing contractions and things like that? Uh, no, I think the birthing pool really, really helped me. 
I'm one of these people that if I ever feel unwell, having a bath really helps me. And as soon as I got there, the birthing suite was free. Because I said, yeah, I'll definitely give it a go. And I spent my whole time, as soon as I got there, I think I got in the birthing port, say 10 past, 20 past seven. I was in there until he was born. And I just had the pool and gas and air. And I'd say the water really, really helped, really helped. And I had the lights quite dimmed as well. And it was nice, warm, comfortable temperature. And was Jack born in the water? Yes, he was. Yeah. And I stayed in there for a few minutes afterwards as well. Until obviously they made me get out then. <laughs> but no, it was, it was really nice. Definitely, definitely recommend the birthing pool. How lovely. I'd definitely do it again. That's cool. Um, so he's just coming up for his first birthday. He is, yeah. It's a bit sad, really. Oh. I feel a little bit... I'm looking forward to it, but I feel a little bit sad. It's time that he's not going to be my baby anymore. He's yeah. going to be this toddling around one-year-old. Oh, brilliant. But he's still your yeah. baby. He is, yeah. He is. <laughs> Bless him. Thank you for sharing your story, Chelsea. And um, I guess I wish you a happy Christmas and a happy birthday for Jack. Perfect. Thank you. Have a nice Christmas to you as well. So thank you, Chelsea, for sharing that. Hey, it's, it's good to know, isn't it, Karen, that if people haven't got anything to do on Christmas Day, there's going to be a listening party at Ethra Space on the 25th. <laughs> I think they might not have been doing it today. <laughs> See, that was me acting and pretending it's the 25th. Um, we should also mention Amy Brown's book is now available. Um, Breastfeeding Uncovered is, is out and um, in the shops and brilliant. And yeah. I reviewed it recently, which I've linked somewhere. I'm sure you can find it. I um, really enjoyed it. Um, also in Ephra Space, where they do now have an alcohol license, should you wish to um, get smashed while reading books. Um, they, <laughs> <laughs> um, they're, we're, they're having a series, hosting a series of talks from Michel Odon. And you can oh, yeah. find details of that on www.pintrandmartin.com slash Odon. O-D-E-N-T. Are you correcting my French, Mark? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. know. Quite an extensive <laughs> range of talks. You know, the guy's an erudite bloke and uh, well worth listening to. Honestly, most of the people I know just like to listen to his voice. Oh, yeah, so I'm going to parody a French accent. wouldn't be appropriate. <laughs> no, Edit, it wouldn't. Editing. It wouldn't be appropriate at all. <laughs> I'm not editing anything today, Mark. It's going out as is. Oh, don't, don't do that. Don't do that too much. <laughs> Um, what have you been reading or looking at or finding interesting lately, Mark? Me. Now, I, I, I've i been reading a book called Sex and Cognition mm-hmm. by Doreen Kimura. And it's it's great. I mean, I, I, I don't like some of the stuff on the uh, cover, but it, it says in this fact driven book, uh, Doreen provides an intelligible overview of what is known about the neural and hormonal basis of sex differences in behavior, particularly differences uh, in cognitive functioning. I'm reading it because it, it you know, it presents a inverted commas scientific uh, rationale for the differences that we experience between the male and the female of the species. Uh, like I've said before, I don't invest much belief as such, but I do need this kind of information uh, in order to uh, share it with those uh, who feel it's important and it's a good book so enjoying that i am enjoying it well it feeds into my writing and stuff because you know i'm writing for a book that's being released uh, in september so it's it's feeding into my writing i'm finding it stimulating uh so it's i'd recommend it 
Cool. Hey, Karen, what, what are you reading at the minute? I have just finished reading Holly McNish's book, Nobody Told Me, which I got in a charity shop. And I think she's used it for a reading because it's marked up and then dedicated to somebody. Um, wow, you've got her a copy. Well, one of, you know, you've how many copies of your book have you got, Mark? <laughs> well, I've got a few. I love, I love, love, love this book because it just, there's so many points at which I went, oh, yeah, that's what I felt like. And particularly yeah. early days with her baby, not knowing what she was doing and just feeling like everybody else in the world was competent and she wasn't. And it's just a, a beautiful book. It's amazing. And I, I love her poetry. And I am i don't know if I'm breaching copyright or not, but I'm going to read you one. Um, so I'm going to fully credit it. Holly McNish from Nobody Told Me, page 85. It's called Abseil. Mm. As you abseil down my chest like a miniature rock climber, hands gripped tightly, push off from my shoulder blade cliffs. You career from left to right, mind focused, eyes open, no waterproofs or harness, just a purple baby grow. You stop, grunting for assistance. I see panic setting in, until quick fingers grope the spot and you fling your head across the sky to your chosen side and land, lips clamped and drink. Then you fall asleep from the exertion. My hungry extreme sports baby, abseil down me any time. Lovely. That's I can't lovely. tell you how often this book made me cry. Yeah, that's lovely. I, 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 do you know, my thoughts went to, to the way as healthcare professionals, we can become so myopic in what we understand to be evidence. You know, that the, the evidence is a certain type of information. But, you, you know, art and poetry communicates because it resonates with our experience. You know, you hear it and you hear, you feel something that, that connects with your own experience. So, you know, narrative and art can be evidence too. Yeah, absolutely. It, it does feel like one of those books that you think people need to read this. Yeah. People need to know. People need to understand what she experienced. Society as a whole could learn from this book, but also individuals, especially parents-to-be, I think. I'm slightly yeah. cautious because it's quite gritty. Yeah, well, but you know, I don't want to. I don't want to gatekeep the truth. Exactly, Karen. Yeah, life's gritty. For you know, yeah. There you go. <laughs> You've silenced me, Karen. That's unusual, Mark. Hold on, hold on. I just want a, snip, a sip of some eggnog. <laughs> That's. I feel, I feel better. Good. I had plenty of milled wine by ten thirteen in the morning. Well, it's a wonderful life, Karen. If you have any suggestions or comments, <laughs> get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Yes, do so. Make sure you have a fabulous Christmas. Mark, you've us. skipped over a whole chunk of script. Have I? Yeah. Have I? Where, what bit? I'll do it. That's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, why not leave us a review? Thanks for listening. Happy Christmas uh, or whatever you celebrate. Now you can do your season's greetings, Mark. Oh, 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 Karen, you do make me laugh. <laughs> and here's Katie to play us out with a poem, the lovely Katie Edwards. Merry Christmas, Sprogcast crew. I've written a little ditty for you. It's Christmas time, full of cheer and mirth. For Sprogcast, another year of birth and parenting debate. Sprogcast tells it to you straight. It makes you think, it opens your eyes. It's always such fun, an element of surprise. It makes me laugh, it makes me smile. The discussions always seem worthwhile. Intelligent chat on this and that.
They've had some great guests. There's a monthly theme. Better births and happy families is the dream. They've even done a Sprogcast Live. Mark often goes on overdrive, but Karen holds the fort. She keeps him in check. She's pretty bossy. She whines in his neck. So I wish you good tidings, Karen and Mark. Merry Christmas to you. I'll look forward to another year of episodes from the Sprogcast crew. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off. Sprogcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.